national life, and I hope it means something in your personal life as well. We're going to say a word about that a little bit later on, and uh, we intended to do a pledge to the flag. We'll do that a little bit later on. Uh, You know, sometimes we get up here and our job is to talk and we forget what to say. (laughs) Amen. But uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter number 21. Exodus chapter number 21. I'd like to preach a message today that I hope will be a help to you. And, uh, you know, I I preached a message similar to this in some ways last Sunday morning and similar to this on Friday in Senior Saints. And, uh, you know, I, I like looking in the Old Testament and seeing Jesus all throughout it, don't you? And you'll find as you study the Word of God that Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. He said to the Pharisees that uh, to search the Scriptures. And, uh, of course, at that time when he made that statement, uh, the New Testament had not yet been written. And, of course, the New Testament is all about Christ, but the Old Testament is all about Him too. Because he said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and there they would speak of Me. And so as you study through the Word of God in the Old Testament, you'll find Him all over the place. Sometimes He's very explicit. Uh, sometimes just in the shadows you'll see our Lord. But I hope that today this will be a help to you, and I want to say some things that are going to encourage you. I believe it does the believer good just to ponder on what the Lord has done for him, don't you? I believe it's good for us to consider how the Lord has been good to us and to just spend a little time thinking on what Calvary means to our life and what it can mean in the life of others. In Exodus chapter number 21, I just want to read the first six verses to you, and then we'll pray. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. Now this is the Lord speaking unto Moses saying, This is what you're going to tell the children of Israel. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve, and in the seventh he shall go for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If given him wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I like this, underscore this, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, illuminate your word to our hearts and minds today. Father, unless you teach it to us, we won't learn it. I pray that each and every heart would be touched by the Holy Ghost, that, Lord, your Spirit would move upon us. Father, that you would give me unction and power to preach, Lord, because I'm incapable by myself. And, Father, I pray that that which needs to be accomplished in our lives would be accomplished today through the power of the Word of God and of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that everything that's done today would be done in such a way that you would gain the glory and the honor. And, Father, we'll be sure to be careful to give it to you. Lord, we want to thank you today for Jesus. We want to thank you for the cross of Calvary, the precious blood that was shed upon our behalf, 
Lord, we want to thank You that You love us. We do love You, Lord, but we only love You because You first loved us. Every bit of this, Father, we ask in that name which is above every name, the only name in which salvation can be found and the name at which every knee shall bow. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. It's interesting, the placement of these six verses. I don't know how familiar you are with the Word of God, but most of you are probably pretty familiar in one way or another with Exodus chapter number 20. And you know that in Exodus chapter number 20, what we call the Ten Commandments was given. And let me say that the law was not necessarily encompassed in those Ten Commandments. Those are ten of the commandments in the Old Testament, but well over 600 commandments in the Old Testament that had to be kept for a man to be pleasing to God through his own ability. We know that we have no capacity to do that. But as you read through the book of Exodus, and particularly through the book of Deuteronomy, and you read the law, you find that there is rhyme and reason to the giving of it. God deals with the home in certain places. He deals with public life in certain places. And you know, God's not a God of randomness, but He's a God of order. So I find it interesting that the opening of God's law in Exodus chapter 21 would deal with such a specific area of life, that of buying a Hebrew servant, and of that servant serving his master, and how that servant could keep the things which he had gained in that service. And it's just fascinating to me that what we might call an obscure area of the law is given immediately following the Ten Commandments. God opens the law with it. But you know, as you read this passage, there's some things that you see uh, that if you pay careful attention, remind me of my Lord. And I don't know if they remind you of our Lord. I think it's interesting that the Bible says that He'll serve Him forever. Now, a human servant can't serve forever, can they? That's impossible. You can serve till you die, but you can't serve forever. I think it's interesting the mode in which that allegiance would be pledged. The servant would have to be pierced and it would be on the doorpost. There's some things in this passage that I believe speak of our Lord. And this morning I'd like to take just a few moments of your time and preach to you on the thought of the servant's love. In these six verses we have a picture of our Lord and I just want to take them two by two if we will, like we're walking into the ark. Amen. Look with me at the first two verses. The Bible says, Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. God says this is a commandment that is to be given. I'm about to give you law right now. I'm about to give you a standard right now that must be met. It says, If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Now, this is in keeping with what we might call the law of Sabbaths in the Word of God. You'll find that God dealt in sevens. The number seven is the number of perfection. And, of course, every 50 year was what we might call a jubilee year, uh, seven sevens. And then in the year following that, in the 50th year, all the land would go back to the previous owners and in the tribes and in the families and all the servants would go out free and in many ways God would wipe the books clean. You say, why would God do such a thing? He did that because He was trying to drive home to His people that they don't really own anything. It all belongs to the Lord. But we find that in this passage, this particular law is given and I want us to note a few things. In this law, in this law that's given in these two verses, we have a description of the law being satisfied. A servant is given to serve. And we find it interesting that in Bible times, 
Uh, slavery was permitted within the confines of God's Word. Now, it wasn't very akin to the slavery that we saw in much of the Western world, but it was a servitude that was given, and this man would be bought with a price, and when he was bought with a price, he was bound to his master to serve him. But we find that this story tells us about a servant that had fulfilled his duty. He had done everything that his master required him to do. Can I say to you that in the satisfying of this law, we see a picture of our Savior. You know, God gave His holy law in the Old Testament. And that holy law was a standard to be set before men. That standard was not to be given so that men could attain perfection, but to show them that they could not attain perfection. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? We've talked about it before. The glory of God is the presence of God, the person of God. In other words, no matter what you do, you can't be as good as God is. No matter how many good deeds you commit, you can't be as good as God is. And there's no question. You might say, well, I've never broken any of the Ten Commandments. But you read through the Old Testament, and I promise you, you've broken at least one of the commandments and probably very many more today. (laughs) As you go through the Word of God, you'll find that if you've broken one of these commandments, the book of James presents it to us almost like a chain dangling the sinner over hell. Uh, He's dangling there, and it doesn't matter which link you break, the chain is still broken. If you break one commandment, you've broken the whole law. But here we have a story about a man that has kept the law for his master. And I want you to notice, first off, uh, the function of this man. He was a servant. His whole purpose in being was to serve. We find that the book of Mark presents to us Christ as the servant of God and the servant of man. If you study through the Gospels, you'll find that there's a genealogy in the book of Matthew. And that genealogy traces our Lord and Savior back to King David. And Matthew presents Christ as the King of the Jews. As you study the book of Luke, you'll find that there's a genealogy given and that traces Christ back to Adam and He's presented as the Son of Man in the book of Luke. And as you read the book of Luke, you're very conscious of His humanity. And as you study the book of John, you'll find that there's not a traditional uh, genealogy given, but there is a hint as to the source of our Lord and Savior. If He had a source, maybe that's a poor choice of words. But where He was before this world began, in John chapter number 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 14 of that same chapter, it tells us who the Word is. It says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What's John trying to say? He's trying to say if you're looking for a genealogy for God, you're not going to find one. He's always been, and He'll always be. But as you read the book of Mark, you find that a genealogy is uniquely absent. Why is that? The book of Mark presents us Christ as the servant of God, and a servant has no genealogy. It's irrelevant where a servant came from. He's there to do a work and to accomplish the will of His Master. You know, Christ said that the Son of Man is come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. The fact is, when Christ came into this world, He humbled Himself. The book of Philippians says that we ought to have this mind in us as Christ Jesus had in Him, who being equal with God thought it not robbery, uh, to, or who being equal with God thought it not robbery to make Himself equal with God, but He made Himself of no reputation, took on Himself the form of a servant. The Bible teaches us that when Christ came into this world, He came as a servant. We see it all through the Gospels. 
We see our Lord uh, willing to pick up dirt from the ground, spit into it, and place it upon the eyes of a blind man to make him whole. That blind man couldn't do that for himself. He needed someone to do it for him. We find our Lord and Savior there preaching in the house in uh, Galilee and they began to let down the man sick with palsy through the roof. And our Lord stopped His preaching to heal that man. That man couldn't do it for himself. And on and on we could go through the Gospels and find instances of our Lord and Savior reaching out and touching a broken body and healing it. What was He doing? He was serving, serving men. But let me say also that he served God as well. You know what he said in John chapter 14 and verse 20? He said, I do always the things that please my Father. He was serving God. He was serving his Father. His will and his Father's will were harmonious. And he was in subjection to his Father. We see the function of this servant. He is a servant. That's his purpose. Christ came into this world to serve. But let me say secondly that we see the fulfillment of this servant. This servant served... But notice that he finished the job. You know, there's something to be said about people that finish the job. We live in a time when people don't finish anything they start, do they? I wonder how many people... I, sadly, I'd have to put up my hand for this. I, I don't have much college education. I took about two semesters of uh, drafting and design uh, while I was enrolled for about three, amen, at Pellissippi. And uh, I never finished college. The Lord called me into the ministry and... I thought, oh, I'm not going to use that foolishness. But uh, I went on into the ministry, and all around us we have people that start things and don't finish them. And you can drive around this city and find where construction's been started and not finished, can't you? It's a sad thing when people don't finish what they've started. We find that this servant, he served out his term. He finished the work that was given for him to do. Do you know that Christ finished the work that his Father gave him to do? In John chapter number 17, he said, I have finished this work. And it's interesting to note that Christ made that statement before he ever went to the cross of Calvary. And I'm going to show you why in a moment. But listen carefully to what the Bible says in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Christ came into this world not to break the law or to do away with the law in a cavalier or rebellious or renegade way, but He came and the Bible says He fulfilled the law. Do you know that Christ Jesus never committed a single sin? Oh, I know that uh, Dan Brown and some authors out here uh, like to believe that He committed sin. I know some of the infidels out here like to believe that He committed sin. Uh, but I'm here to serve notice on you that the Bible teaches very clearly that in Him was no sin that he knew no sin, and that he did no sin. You say, why does the Bible say it that way? Because it's teaching us that our Lord had no sin nature. In him was no sin. See, you and I have a sin nature within us. You say, people die and go to hell because they do bad things. I don't know where you heard that, but that's not true. People die and go to hell because they've rejected Jesus Christ, and they in and of themselves are worthy of hell. That's the only thing we're worthy of. But we find that our Savior had no sin nature. The Bible said, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. You know what that means? That means in His thoughts He never sinned. Sin was a foreign thing to our Savior. He never thought of a sinful thought. He never had a sinful feeling. He never once had a sinful inclination within Himself. But it goes farther. The Bible says He did no sin. In other words, He never did a single thing wrong. Christ was the perfect Jew. The perfect Jew. 
He fulfilled every portion of the law. He kept every commandment in the law. There was never a time when Pharisees could have truly looked at him and said, you're outside the bounds of the law. Oh, there was a a time or two when they tried to do that. And they came to him and they said, well, your disciples, they eat with unwashing hands. And he turned it around on them. And they came and said, your disciples, they eat on the Sabbath day. He said, don't you remember David going into the temple and eating of the showbread of the table? You see, the Sabbath was not, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath made for man. He taught how that he had the right to heal upon the Sabbath day. He was the Lord of the law, but he was the keeper of the law as well. He fulfilled all of the law. But I want you to notice the freedom of this servant. Look what it says there in verse number 2. And in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Now I want you to pay careful attention because I'm going to try to explain this to you without getting tangled up in thoughts. Do you know that Christ had every right to come to this earth, live a perfect life, ascend up to heaven, and never walk to Calvary's hill, he would have still been God even if he had done that. Now, I understand it was within the will of the Father. I understand that it was God's will that he die on the cross of Calvary. I'm not trying to dispute that. But what I'm saying is if Christ had never died for you, he would have still been God. He didn't become God because he died for you. It wasn't a martyr's death. It was a substitutionary death. We see that this servant, after he had fulfilled his obligation, was given the liberty to go out free for nothing. Let me tell you something, friend. Uh, There aren't enough wicked men in this world. There aren't enough armies in this world. There aren't enough policemen in this world to nail our Savior to a cross if he hadn't wanted to go there. He had the right, if he had chose to, to go out free for nothing. He had fulfilled the law. In John 17, he said, I finished the work that you've given me to do. What's he saying? He's not talking about the work of Calvary. He's talking about fulfilling the law. I've lived. I've done everything, God, that you have asked me to do. I've been a faithful son and a faithful servant. I have fulfilled and completed and kept the law. And he could have walked on into glory right then, sent us to a devil's hell, listen carefully, and we would have deserved it. We would have deserved it. You say, well, I just don't get what I deserve in this life. You better thank the Lord for that. Because if we got what we deserved in this life, there wouldn't be one of us that wouldn't be in a devil's hell today. That's what we deserve. That's what we deserve. We see the law was satisfied in the person of Christ. Why don't you notice, secondly, that there are some limitations to servitude. You say, what do you mean? Well, there's some things that the law could not do. Look what it says there in verse number 3. It says, if he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. In other words, if when he became a servant he was married, then he could go out with his wife. But notice what it says in verse 4. If his master have given him a wife. Boy, I like that. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. There's a problem in this passage. You say, what? Not not with the passage, but there's a problem for this servant. He's got a choice he has to make. You see, when this servant began to serve, he didn't have a wife to himself. You say, I thought the Jews were the wife of Christ, the bride of Christ. No, the Jews are the wife of Jehovah. The church is the bride of Christ. And you say, I thought that the church was his from the foundation of the world. Yeah, I understand that. But what did he do when he came to Calvary? He died and purchased a church for himself. The Bible says he gave himself for the church in the book of Ephesians. He gave himself 
for the church. He died for the church. So even though he had come, fulfilled the law, even though this servant had done everything that he needed to do, that couldn't do a thing for the wife and the children that he had been given by his master. He had to make a choice. If he wanted to, he could go out free for nothing. Not an ounce of pain, not an ounce of angst, could walk away a free man that day. No obligations. No one would have looked and said he was a pitiful servant. He had done the job. Wouldn't have made him any less of a servant, the fact that he had left. He had fulfilled the work that was given him to do. He had paid the debt. He had fulfilled the law. But he had a choice to make. I want you to notice that though he had fulfilled the law, the law could not sanctify his children or his wife. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter number 3 and verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law has no capacity to save anyone. Isn't that what it says? By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Justified. The book of Galatians reiterates it when it says, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Let me tell you something, friend. You can be a good person your whole life. You know that won't wash away your sins? You know that you can try to serve God your entire life, but if you've never been born again, that won't help you a bit. It is impossible for the law to cleanse you and to save you. There's no way for the law to... You say, but people were saved under the law, and they were saved by faith, just like faithful Abraham, just like faithful David. In the book of Romans, the book of Hebrews, very clear about that, that it was by faith that they were justified. The law in and of itself could not save anyone. We find that this servant, though he had kept the law, though he did not owe anything to his master any longer, it could not sanctify his children, his wife. It couldn't pay their debt for them. It couldn't let them go out free. So what's going to make the difference? We see the uh, law satisfied, and we see the limitations of servitude. Your good works, your baptism, your church membership, your praying grandmama, your praying granddaddy cannot make you saved. You have to accept Christ as yourself. But I want you to notice something. Look what it says in verse number 5. Man, I like this. Here this servant is, and he's got to figure out a way. He doesn't want to leave his wife. He doesn't want to leave his children. He could go out free for nothing. No pain, no angst. He'd have still been a good servant. Look what it says in verse 5. And if the servant shall plainly say, Well, I like this. I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. You say, why did Christ do what he did? I can give you a few reasons. First off, I'd say it's because he loves the Lord. And he knew that the Lord's heart was to redeem men from sin. You say, why would he do what he did and die on Calvary? I'll give you a second reason. Because he loves the church. The Bible says he loved and gave himself for the church. We live in a day when men don't think a lot about the church. You know that? I mean, that's the truth. I'm not browbeating you. I know you're here. I'm not going to preach the message to those that aren't, to those that are, you know. But I'm just being honest with you. Church has gone down about 50 pegs on our priority list. Let me tell you what Christ thinks about the church. He loved it enough to die for it. That's what the church means to Him. 
He loved and gave Himself for the church. I like this. I love my children. Now, I understand that we're not the children of Christ, we're the children of God. Okay, I understand that. And I understand the Bible speaks about Christians with Christ, in Christ being brethren. I understand that. But let me say that in Christ, the Bible teaches that all of the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. And Christ was just as much God as God the Father is God. So in a sense, even though we are not the children of Christ, we are the children of God, and Christ is God just as much as the Father is God. What was he saying when he said, I love my children? Let me give you another reason he did what he did. Because he loves you. That's why he died on the cross of Calvary. He loves you. He could have gone out free for nothing. You say, oh, well, he had to go uh, to the cross of Calvary to fulfill the law. No, friend, the Bible says, Cursed, cursed, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. If a man was hung from a tree in the Old Testament, it was a curse to him and a curse to his family. It wasn't the fulfillment of the law that caused him to go to Calvary. But, oh, my friend, it was a love for you. It was a love for me. It was a love for the church, for your children, for the children I'll have one day. It was a love for your parents, for my parents. It was a love for your family, for my family, friend, he tasted death for every man and he loves the entire world, the Bible teaches. Why did he do what he did? We see first off a plan for redemption. I want you to look with me and I'm going to try to be brief. Look what it says there in Exodus chapter number 21. Look at verse number 5. It says, and if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free It says, then. So in other words, if the servant says, this whole leaving my wife and my master and my children, this isn't going to do. There has to be another way. There has to be something that can done, that can keep us united. What can be done? We see the plan for redemption. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. We see the love of the Savior. And I want you to notice that it was a purposed route that he took. Look what it says in verse number 6. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. It does not say that evil, wicked men would bring him unto the judges. Oh, I know the book of Acts talks about how wicked men with wicked hearts slew our Lord. I understand that. There was a lot of debate whenever the passion of Christ came out. Uh, and they said, well, Mel Gibson's an anti-Semite. Maybe he is. I don't know. I don't, I don't, he don't return my calls. Amen? So, I don't know. Maybe he is. But people were disputing back and forth. And they were saying, well, some people believe it was the Jews uh, that crucified Christ. But that's racist. You can't say that. And then others say it's the Romans that crucified Christ. You can pick on the Romans. They ain't around anymore. Amen? Ain't that how it goes? If you're not around to say your peace, you get trampled all over. Some people said, no, it wasn't the Romans. It was the Jews. No, it wasn't the Jews. It was the Romans. Let me give you a better answer than that, and it's still not the right answer in a sense, but let me say it was our sins that put them on that cross. It was your sins, my sins, put them on the cross. Friend, you really get to where you understand Calvary. You'll look into your hand and find a hammer. You really get to where you understand Calvary. You'll look into your other hand and find a crown of thorns you pushed on his head. You'll understand it was you that he went to the cross for. But let me give you the best answer, I believe, because I'm going to answer it with Bible. Who was it that crucified Christ? Who took him to the cross? There's a verse. You may not know it. It's, you know, it's stuck in the back of the Bible somewhere. People don't ever read this verse. For God so loved the world that 
He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why did Christ go to Calvary? Because of His love for you and me and because that was the will of God for all of humanity and for His life. We see a purposed root. It was God that sent Him to the cross. But I want you to see that we see a painful ritual. It's not enough that He says, I love them. It's not enough that He's willing. Something has to be done before the problem is solved. Look what it says again in verse 6. He shall also bring him to the door or under the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. How many of you know what an awl is? Oh, there's a few of you. Let me give you a very scientific definition of an awl. It's a big old spike. (laughs) And it's used for the purpose of piercing things. If you do any kind of uh, leather work or anything like that, you'll probably use an an awl to do that work with. The Bible says that the master was to take this servant and to take him to the door or to the doorpost. He was brought to the judges. So this isn't just talking about in his own home, but it's saying outward in a a public area he had to be brought. And he had to be brought before the judges. And when he was brought there, they took him to the doorpost and they laid his ear against the door. Now, boys, this isn't advocating ear piercing, amen. Uh, I'll tell you what, if, if you getting your ear pierced does for this world what him getting his ear pierced did, I'll let you do it, amen. But uh, that's not what it's talking about. They'd take and put his ear against that doorpost. And they'd take and they'd pierce him. If he wasn't pierced, he hadn't paid the debt. If he hadn't shed his blood, placed it on the doorpost, the way hadn't been made yet. Listen to what the book of Exodus chapter number 12 says. You've read this, I know, but let me give it to you in chapter 12, verse 7. And they shall take the blood. The blood of what? The blood of the Passover lamb and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. You see, this Hebrew servant's blood wasn't the first blood that had been applied to the door post. There was another blood that had been placed on the doorpost when the children of Israel were there in Egypt and they were in bondage and a way had to be made for them to get out. God gave provision in this. He said that on the night that the death angel comes, that the archangel makes its way through the land of Egypt, every single house that doesn't have the blood applied to the doorpost, there will the firstborn son be slain. And all throughout Egypt, uh, cries of pain and cries of grief and cries of horror rang out that night, but it was eerily silent and wonderfully peaceful in the home of those that had applied the blood to their doorposts. The lamb had to be taken and slain and the blood had to be applied. You say, why did the blood have to be applied? Uh, That way everybody that came through that door was covered in it. You see, the truth of the matter is this. It wasn't enough that Christ came and lived the life that He lived. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Because I'm going to tell you something that a lot of theologians dispute about and a lot of people on TV and that make study Bibles and things of that sort, uh, a lot of them make statements uh, like one Mr. MacArthur made the statement that the blood of Christ had no efficacy of it in and of itself. And I heard that brought up just the other day again. Oh, I know he tried to refute it. Say what you will. But I still believe in the blood. I don't know if you do. We still believe in the blood here at Walridge Baptist Church, too. And we still sing about the blood. We still preach about the blood. We still testify about the blood. And we'll always do it as long as you put up with me. Amen. But uh, theologians say that he was just a good man. 
that came and lived a good life and left us an example of compassion and caring and self-sacrifice towards others. I believe he was a good man. I also believe he was 100% God too. He wasn't just a man. You see, the truth of the matter is this. You can't have it both ways. Either Christ was the Son of God or He was a liar and a charlatan. And to this day, He deceives people straight into a devil's hell. You can have it one of those ways. You can't have it both ways. The truth is, He made plain that He was the Son of God. He made plain that He was the Son of God delivered from heaven. So if He was just a good man, then He was a liar. He can't be both. And we find that it wasn't enough that He lived a good life. It wasn't enough that He kept the law. Because even if he had kept the law, except he went by the way of Calvary, he would have still been God. But he couldn't have saved you and he couldn't have saved me. You see, he fulfilled the law, but then he had to allow his own body to be broken and die in your place and in my place. We see that there is a painful ritual associated with this servant. He had to be pierced. The Bible says in the book of Zechariah that one of these days the Jews are going to look on him whom they've pierced. He was pierced. Why was he pierced? What was the crime so great that he had to be pierced? What was the great uh, inhumanity that he had committed that he had to be nailed to a cross? It was love for you, love for me. He said, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I want to give you one last thing and I'm going to close. Uh, We see in this passage the law satisfied. We see in this uh, passage uh, the limitations of servitude, that just fulfilling the law was not enough. We see the love of the Savior, that He loved you, loved me, and paid our sin debt. Within this, we see that it was a purpose to root. It wasn't an accident. God sent Him by way of Calvary. We see that there was a painful ritual. He had to die in your place and my place. But what was it all for? Why, why did He do it? What was the purpose of it? We see a perpetual relationship. Look at verse 6. The very end it says, And he shall serve him forever. You see, by the blood of this covenant that this servant had made with his master, he pledged a few things. He pledged his undying loyalty to his master. Can I say that never once has the will of God the Father and the will of God the Son been out of harmony and never will it ever be? Always they'll be in harmony one with another. But, you know, he could have stayed with the master if he had chosen to, or he could have gone out free for nothing. But by paying that debt and shedding his blood, he made it to where his wife and his children could dwell forever with him and his master. What's the beauty of the cross? The beauty of the cross is not just that it takes the drunkard and makes him a deacon. It's not just that it takes the prostitute and makes her a Sunday school teacher. It's not just that it it changes lives, although that's wonderful. It's not just that it gives men hope, although hope is a marvelous thing. What's the beauty of Calvary? The beauty of Calvary is the relationship that it gives us with God throughout all eternity. What did the psalmist say in Psalms 23 when he wrapped it all up? He said, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me tell you something, friend. If you're lost today, you're an alien from God. That's what the Bible says. You don't know God. You say, I, I love God. No, you don't. You don't even know God. If you've never been saved, you don't know who God is. You don't know anything about Him. You say, oh, but I've been taught this and that. Yeah, you may have a head knowledge. You don't have a heart knowledge. You don't really know Him. 
you know God about like you know the historical figures that live in this uh, that lived in this world at one time, but you don't actually know Him. The only way you're going to get to know Him is through the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says Christ in John chapter 14 said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me." The only way you can know God is to know Him through Jesus Christ, His Son. And if Christ had not died on Calvary, there'd be no hope for you, no hope for me. But because Christ went that way, paid that debt, suffered in our stead, died in our place, you can know Christ as your Savior. You can have a relationship with God. And, boy, I like this, dwelt forever. In other words, it doesn't say that the servant and his wife and his children would serve until they messed up and then they'd lose their status. You know, once you're saved, you can never be unsaved. Even if you try to be unsaved, you can't be unsaved. You can get, listen, friend, you can get every priest in the world to pray over you to take your salvation away. That ain't going to do you a lick of good. You can get every preacher in the world to come by, smack you on the forehead, knock you on the ground, make you feel like something happened in your life, and tell you that you're not saved. But if you have truly been born again, you can never lose your salvation. Serve Him forever. I hope that today it's encouraged you. It encourages me to think what God's done in my life. Uh, But I also hope that if you're here and you're lost without Christ, that you see the love of God, that He loves you, paid your debt, that He'll save you today with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed as a musician slips to the piano. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You and love You for what You've done in our hearts and lives. I pray that in this invitation You would just accomplish that which would be pleasing to You. Father, we love and thank You for it. In Christ's name, Amen.